This resource is produced by Discipleship.org, championing Jesus' way of disciple-making. Attend the next National Disciple-Making Forum by registering at Discipleship.org. The following audio comes from the 2016 National Disciple-Making Forum. The theme this year was Culture Shift, Back to Jesus' Way of Disciple-Making. Discipleship.org brought together 10 disciple-making organizations all in one place, each organization hosting a different track. One of those 10 tracks was hosted by Sun Life Ministries with Dan Spader and his team. Here's audio content from Sun Life in their track called Life of Christ Disciple-Making. Okay, I have about 2.30, so we'll go ahead and get started. And so, good to have you here. Good to have you here. I went back and met the troublemakers already. Uh, because you do know, whenever you speak to a group of people, the most intelligent people are always to the speaker's left, so that's over here. So some of our team tried to move over there. But they've heard me say this before, so we don't look like we have a small intelligent section. And then the party people tend to be in the middle. Uh, you know, yeah, they always love to be surrounded by others. And then on the right-hand side, yeah, I'll tell you about them later. They're your troublemakers. They create the problem, especially the back right-hand corner. So uh, I've already talked to the guys in the back right-hand corner. They give you three minutes. If you're not good, they're leaving, if not physically, mentally. So, But they're, they're, we'll see if that proves to be true or not. Uh, we have a number of good, uh, some of our team members here, Doug. Holiday is executive director of Sun Life Ministries. If you don't know Doug, uh, Doug's going to be doing the uh, next session in here, uh, and I'll give you a little bit of an overview of that uh, uh, acronym we use called Holy Spirit Power and uh, Walking as Jesus Walk. Don Roscoe is here. Don trains our trainers, does a lot of stuff for us all over the globe uh, as a major work for us. Just got back from Nepal, a 60-hour trip uh, down to Singapore plus trains all of our trainers in North America. Don's been walking with us for 30-plus years, and I'm still trying to get Don to know the Lord. So anyway, uh, uh, that's Don Roscoe. He's going to be doing on the five phases of how Jesus built a movement later on. And let's see, who else do we have in here that some of our staff that's doing is Dean's not in here. Uh, and I could go around this room. Jean Milliken, who's on staff with us, who led women's ministry. Jackie with the free, women's ministry, free church, some of my heroes. Uh, women discipling women, uh, some of my heroes having three daughters. So uh, I just think that whole issue of women discipling women, we got to raise the bar for that big time. Uh, but that's just a personal passion of mine. So, uh, But there's a number of wonderful people in here I've known through the years and built relationships with. And I go around and I start naming them all. Uh, and I'm looking at someone I want to talk about them and brag on them, but I'm not going to do that even right now. So let me open prayer and let's just dive into the subject, Okay. Uh, Father, we love you. Uh, we really, really want to just say we love you. And we want you to show up during our time together. I pray that I'd quickly disappear and Jesus would appear. Um, that you would say whatever you want to say during this time. Thank you for a wonderful opening session. Uh, it's just so good to be with people, uh, similar tribe and passion, to make the final command the great command. To make disciples, make disciples. All of us are learners. Help us to learn in this session, myself included, and help us to um, just elevate Jesus. And so, Lord, I just invite your presence into this room during our time together. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, my name is Dan Spader, and for a number of years, I led a ministry called Sun Life Ministries. It grew out of our youth group. 
I mentioned to some of my friends, I was challenged early on by a professor. I've been a Christian one a little bit over a year. Went to Bible school. My professor was Stan Gundry. And he made a statement because I started as a youth pastor in a church of 100 people with six kids in my youth group. And I didn't have a clue what a youth group should look like. I'd never done youth ministry. I was a brand new Christian, but I needed a job, so I started working part-time as a youth pastor. And uh, brand new in this, my professor, Stan Gundry, made a statement in the Gospel of John. Some of Christ's initial disciples could have been or probably were teenagers. And that's probably true of John. Matter of fact, our whole ministry now, I lead a ministry. We're in 111 countries around the globe called Global Youth Initiative. We target 30 and under leaders. Why? Because it's easier to set a DNA for disciple making than to reset an old DNA toward disciple making. And so we've learned the best way to change a nation is to do what Jesus did. Target the young, invest in them, set the right disciple making DNA. And so that, that professor made a statement. The Christ, some of Christ's initial disciples could have been teenagers. I said, wow, is that really true? I ran to him. He just compiled a harmony of the Gospels, which took the four Gospels, put them chronologically, and said, I think he wanted to sell them. So he said, you ought to buy one. And so I went and bought one, and I spent 10 years just analyzing. What did Jesus do the first year? What did Jesus do the second year? What did Jesus do the third year? What did the fourth year? We called a youth group Sun Life because we are just trying to do what Jesus did. As a brand new Christian, I thought everybody did that. And so we... Didn't want to divorce the message of Jesus from the methods of Jesus or the model of his life. And so uh, our youth group was called Sun Life. God blessed it. Began to multiply. People began to come and say, how are you doing it? So I don't know. Just doing what Jesus did and it works. And well, what is that? So we did our first training called a Sun Life Strategy Seminar. Began to train youth pastors. Did that for 10 years. Had a couple, th- well, more than a couple thousand, several thousand youth pastors engaged with us. And then pastors began to come to us and say, Help us do what Jesus did. I don't know. I've never been a senior pastor except I helped plant a church for a couple of years. But I, oh, they said, well, you don't have to be a senior pastor. Just teach us Jesus. That I can do. So I began to teach the life of Christ to pastors. We did that for 12 years, 25 denominations. And then some of our guys began to go overseas, and that's where I'm at right now. I, I lead a ministry, a co-lead with my partner here, Steve Hudson. He just was here, too. I didn't see Steve or Dean or hiding out there. They're shy and bashful. Uh, guys, if you believe that, I've got a bridge I'll sell you. Uh, but Steve's co-leader with me with Global Youth Initiative. We're in 111 countries around the globe, just building disciple-making movements, uh, what we were talking about this morning with younger leaders around the globe. So uh, my passion, the passion of my life, without a doubt, the number one passion is to get to know the real Jesus. And not the Jesus that we've been told a lot of times about or the fictional Jesus we've created in our mind or we've seen in these flannel boards or these pictures of Jesus or this certain style of Jesus. What's the real Jesus that walked on this earth like? And that's kind of been the passion of my life because I find that Jesus very life-changing. And so uh, what I've been asked to do in this, and we're going to do over the five tracks uh, that we'll be doing here, I believe that there are at least two major ways you can exegete the life of Christ. And you know what I mean by exegete? I mean, we're trying to understand the real Jesus using the scriptures, because we that's what we have now. We have tradition, pat down, but we have the scriptures. Uh, what was that real Jesus like that walked on this earth? And one way you can exegete the real Jesus is you can study how did Jesus, as a disciple maker, make disciples? And so we're going to look in this session about how Jesus made disciples 
as a disciple maker. Okay, that's one way. There's a second way, and my friend Don Rosso is going to be teaching us later on in one of the other sessions, on how do you, as a leader, build a movement of disciple makers. So the first one, we look through the lens of Jesus as a discipler. How did he make disciples? The second way, we're going to look at how Jesus built a movement of disciple makers as a leader who birthed a movement, a movement that within 28, 38, 28 years turned the world upside down, the scripture says. Literally turned the Roman Empire, Roman Empire upside down. And so as a leader, how do you build a movement? And then as a disciple, how do you make disciples? Okay. We all right with that? Okay, that's where I'm going. I'm going to go fast, okay? So hang with me. I normally like to have about 9 to 10 hours to do what we're going to do today, okay? And we're going to do it in 45, 50 minutes, all right? I want to have some time for questions at the end. And feel free at any time I talk too fast, say, slow down, or you've got a question, say, time out, i got a question. I love that. That means you're learning if you ask questions. So I love it. Or if you disagree with me, I even love that more. Uh, you do know that when you disagree with the speaker, you got to watch out. Because when you disagree with the speaker, that means you're thinking. When, if all of you always agree with me, that means you're not thinking. You're just listening. But if you often disagree, that means you're thinking, and you'll become like that thought later on. So be careful if you disagree. But I love disagreement. Make sense? Okay. Obviously, you can see one of my masters is in, in uh, education. So I love that thought. So... Here's where we're going to go, and here's what we want to do. Now, for some reason, this is not moving. What's going on here? Why is this not allowing me to switch? Hmm. There you go. I want to introduce you to the most important people in my life before I get started. It's a little bit about me. Um, I say I live in a girl's dormitory because I had three daughters. One wife and a female dog and then a female cat, which we got rid of real fast. Um, so this is my wife, Char. She's around here somewhere. But she was her parents grew up in Africa, so I married a, an African, I always say, but she's not really. Um, and then my three daughters. These are my oldest daughters. They got married within six months. each other. married best friends, and they're planting a church together in Santee, California. They've given us six here, but seven grandkids, soon to be eight. And so... That's my future, those grandkids. I can't wait to get to the place where I can pour into my grandkids on a deep, deep level. And so we're probably making a move just to do that a little bit more. And then my youngest daughter, Christy, is on staff of Campus Crusade, loves Jesus, a monster discipler, uh, set a record for Campus Crusade, raising her support in almost under six weeks so she could be on on a university campus tonight. She's speaking to 400 college kids. On Jesus, so God's just gifted her in every way. But so I have a real passion again, like I said, to see women discipling women, along with a lot of other things, because I think it's a whole area we're totally missing, and I got so many of them in my life. So God's been good. There's no guarantees with kids, are there? But when they walk with the Lord, life is good. So here's what I want to talk about: our mission. Without a doubt, we all know our mission, right? That's the Great Commission: is to make disciples and make disciples. So I'm just going to frame up some things real fast. We're going to give you a lot of this stuff on your seat with a, you, a free book if you want. If you don't have a book, want a book? Uh, uh, there's a free book you can pick up down the bookstore. Um, so I'm going to frame up what's in this book for chair discipling and how do you be a disciple maker? But but I just want to know, make sure we're all on the same page that our mission is to make disciples who can make disciples. Now, why do we say it that way? 
Why do we say we want to make disciples and make disciples? Why don't we say what the Bible says? Our mission is to make disciples. Why would I not just say what the Bible says? Because in our culture, we think you can make a disciple that doesn't make a disciple. Okay, yeah. Bottom line is, I do consulting at Southeast Christian. I don't know if you know that little church down the road. About 30,000 people. uh, 400 staff. One of the things we said that we, we don't like to ever say our mission is to make disciples because 90% of people in the church think that that's just another Bible study. It's a deeper, you know, study of the Word. Because disciple-making, Jesus-style, demands reproduction. And here's how I like to say it. You haven't made a disciple until they make a disciple. I can't put a higher bar for this room than, than that bar right there. That is the highest bar biblically I can give it. You haven't made a disciple until reproduction happens. You make disciples, make disciples. So that's our mission. Our motive then is love God and love people. That's the great commandment. So you couple the great commission with the great commandment. So in six words, you can summarize the life of Christ, which what he did with the great commission and great commandment. You love God with your whole heart, soul, and mind. And then you love people. None of this, I love you, God, just can't stand people. It doesn't compute with God. It doesn't compute with God. Matter of fact, the Bible says, if you love God but can't stand people, you're a liar. Now, I didn't say that because I don't like that word. God said that. Because the way you love God is loving people. The way you love people is loving God. You cannot separate two. But if you put love God, love people, and make disciples together, in those six words, you summarize what what our task is. Our task is. So, you know that. We could spend a lot more time on our model. And you've been talking here a lot at this conference is Jesus. Jesus is our model. Now, I want to just, I could, I could, some of you who know me, I could spend three days here. But let me, I just want to say something real fast. We're going to deal with this much deeper on our fourth session, I believe, where we do the form in the worship chapel or the, uh, the small chapel. And we're going to four or five discuss like they did in the stage. Why is Jesus our model? I mean, that sounds so basic, doesn't it? Everybody says Jesus is our model, right? I did for years. Didn't have a clue what I was talking about. Do you understand biblically that there are five forms of Jesus in the Bible? Uh, let me give you three for simplicity's sake. And I use the term very carefully. Jesus, in form, is a Greek word morphe out of Philippians 2. You have the pre-incarnate form of Christ. He created the world, right? Everything you see, he made. He wrote the book he was going to later on read, called the Bible. So you have the pre-incarnate Christ, and then you have the exalted, resurrected Christ, the God-man in heaven. That's another form of Jesus, right? And then you have the, I call it the I-Christology, the incarnate Christ. The incarnate Christ. Now, biblically, nowhere are we ever told to imitate the pre-incarnate or the incarnate, or the resurrected Christ. But we are told to imitate the incarnate Christ. And so, for me to say, Jesus is my model, is no small thing. Because I can show you 40 times, 8 different ways, Jesus said, do what I've done, walk as I walk, follow the pattern I gave you. And, and this is not a slogan to me. I think there are three levels of understanding Jesus. One level you can understand the message of Jesus. Uh, Jim Putnam talked about this. Uh, 95% of the books out there are on the message of Jesus. Would you agree with me? 
Most of the sermons are on the message of Jesus. And that's wonderful. We're going to spend eternity studying the message of Jesus. It's profound. It's deep. But that's just one level. Then you can study the methods of Jesus. Wow, I spent 10 years just working on the methods of Jesus. His prayer life, 45 times, slipped away to pray. 33 different instances. Whoa. How he used scripture, 84 times, quoted from the Old Testament scripture, 72 different Old Testament chapters. Whoa. The methods of Jesus. You see, when you understand the methods of Jesus, the message of Jesus has whole new meaning. Whole new meaning. And if you couple the methods of Jesus with the the message of Jesus with the methods, you're beginning to get to what I call life transformation. I loved how Putnam says he used a reverse. We preach the message of Jesus, but don't use a method to expect to get the results of Jesus. I love how Putnam says that. That, the same thing, that is so critical. But I think there's a third level, and this has kind of been the journey I've been on the last 15 years, is what is the model of Jesus' life in his humanity? When he added humanity to his deity and became flesh and dwelt among us, what was that Jesus really like? Because we're told to think and act just like that Jesus. And that's the passion of my life. I don't think I ever get over it. How do I think like Jesus thought? Because he thinks so... The reason I sin so much on different occasions is because I'm not thinking like him. How was he thinking? What was he? And then act. So, message of Jesus, great. Message of Jesus, wonderful. Let's get down to the model of his life. And that's the whole area. We're going to spend a whole session on that when we do that. You know, I encourage you to come. We'll mess up some of your heads on Jesus. Uh, we, some of you may leave that meeting mad at us. Uh, we're going to push you on what theologians call the hypostatic union which is fully God, fully man. We're going to wrestle with some of the implications of that, which is the most deepest theology you can wrestle with. So if you like to, uh, I could, where I'm doing training all the staff at Southeast, of the 400 staff, I'll bet 150 of them, if I could line them up here, would say, this was a game changer in their personal life. This was the game changer for understanding Jesus when he understood his full humanity. That's what we're going to try to unpack in our, our form we do. I think it's session four. So we're going to spend more time on that. We're going to look at things fully God, fully man. I love what Ryrie says, never less than God. Yet he chose to live his life never more than man. Whoo, that is big. That is huge. He chose to live his life never more than man. Because you know what my experience is? Most Americans make him more than man. We make him Superman. Oh, he looks human, but it's really Clark Kent. When he goes in that phone booth, he comes out with a cape, and he does these miracles by using his God card. That's faulty Jesus. So we're going to wrestle with that. Some of you may get mad at me there, but we'll wrestle with it. No, you won't. You won't. You'll see the truth. No, all right. Okay, he was man as God intended man to be. And I love that statement. That's why I call him the second Adam. You want to know what we will be like one day? Get to know the real Jesus. He was man as God intended man to be. Does that mean we'll walk on water? Does that mean we'll be able to say to the storm, be still? Does that mean we'll say to the fish, go to the other side of the boat? I don't know, but I know when sin entered the world, we lost dominion over creation. And Jesus had dominion over creation. And if you understand Hebrews 2, Hebrews 5... It points us that direction. Oh, this now gets exciting. 
when we see what our future is going to be. Are you with me? I mean, I am so pumped about our future, which I'm convinced is really close. I believe he's coming back pretty soon. I am so pumped about that because I've spent a lot of time wrestling with his man as God intended man to be. And then so our motto is Jesus, our means, and this is going to be, Doug's going to talk about this. We have an acronym called Holy Spirit Power. 35 years of studying the life of Christ. We broke it down to six priorities of how Jesus did what Jesus did in his humanity. And you don't, if you're coming back, you don't need to write that down, but we're going to walk through each of those as we see these in the life of Christ. And this is our core teaching on how to walk as Jesus walked. Matter of fact, we wrote a whole study that we've had thousands and thousands go through, 5,000 at Southeast Sloan, walking through that Holy Spirit power called Walking as Jesus Walked. It's just a study, our best exegesis of how did Jesus do what Jesus did in his humanity. Holy Spirit dependent, prayerfully guided, obedience learned. Ooh, I love how they're talking about you got to teach disciples to obey. But do you know Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered? How do you learn obedience when you're perfect? But he did. If you understand the answer to that, you understand Jesus to a whole new level. The real Jesus. And I could go through each of those, and I, I won't, and we won't get out of here. What we want to go to is our method. And this is a method, a simplified version of how do we make disciples make disciples, looking at Jesus' life. Now, in the book I wrote on this, we'll gladly give you a free copy if you want one. Um, we call it the four challenges of Jesus. I use a metaphor in the book called four chairs. And uh, how many of you heard me or somebody else do the four chairs? Okay, a number you have. I'm, uh, we've had over 4,000 just this last year go through this, so God's really blessing it and using it. Uh, this metaphor came from our guy out of Latin America, a kid in my youth group, Mark Edwards. Uh, he leads our disciple-making movement down there. He just grabbed four chairs once, taught me about, told me about how he's using it. And uh, I thought, oh, that's nice, that's nice. Never used it. I've trained for years on this. I was training the elders at Southeast Christian. And I, I could tell they weren't getting it. You know, if those of you teach something no regularly, you know, you know when people are getting it, when they're not. You, you, you know, I'm not too smart, but I'm smart enough to know when people in the room are with you or not. Okay, uh, the guys in the back are a little bit with me, yeah, but they're hanging in there. Okay, they're doing their best. They're, okay, yeah, all right. And 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 I could tell the elders weren't getting it, and so I said I got to do something different. So I grabbed four chairs. I thought of what Mark had said. I grabbed four chairs. And I couldn't believe, my goodness, immediately they started asking all the right questions. Immediately they said, oh, now we see it. Immediately they began to say, well, what's keeping people in chair one and not moving to chair two? And why do they get stuck in chair two and not want to go to chair three? And they, what are some barriers? And what, and, and, and what does the scripture mean? It says no fruit, fruit, more fruit, much fruit. Does that overlay? And they begin to ask all the right questions. And everybody started talking real quickly around Southeast about the four chairs. So I said, i got to get it in a book before somebody else steals it. <laughs> so, goes into spate of retirement fund, and we're giving them away. That's really dumb. All right, so here are the four challenges. All right, basically, let me walk you through, and I'm going to do this real fast again. We have a six-hour workshop on this. We can bring it to your church. we got a, over 180 trainers already, Doug, or 50 or something like that. Um, some trainers in this room, if you want a group of people exposed to this, but three to six hour seminar. But let me just kind of frame it up. And um, when you study the life of Christ, you'll find 30 years, you know, in Nazareth, his hometown, being obedient to his parents. 
One day I could see him sitting on Nazareth Ridge, which later on they're going to throw him off. How many of you been in Israel? Anybody? Oh, I want to take you all. Wish that we're done here. I'm going on Sunday, Monday to Israel. Anybody else want to come? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I love to take you all because nothing better than teaching Jesus in Israel. I can visualize this Christopher, the big ridge right outside Nazareth, overlooking the Megiddo Valley where Armageddon is going to happen. 90% of the Old Testament battles happen right there. And so Jesus had devotions out there every morning. Every time when we're out there, there's usually air boys playing. And I can visualize Jesus, 12 years old, out in this ridge. And, and he's out there having devotions one morning before he goes and helps his dad in the, in the shop. And, uh, or now he's leading that because his dad's passed away. And the Spirit of the Lord says, okay, today's the day. About 30. For what, Father? I want you to go get baptized by your cousin John. Whoa. His cousin John didn't even know, didn't even know who the Messiah was. John said, I wouldn't have known who it was. Now, that's an interesting family discussion afterwards, isn't it? Until I saw the Spirit coming upon him. But Jesus baptized. He comes up out of the water. What happened? The Spirit comes upon him with what? Without measure. I think, now this is a hunch. This I call biblical speculation. I don't know if this is right. It's reading between the lines of scriptures, but it's based on a lot of understanding of scripture. I believe at that moment, all the scripture Jesus has been studying for 30 years fell together, and he says, I'm it. He's immediately, it says, Filled with the Spirit, then he's led by the Spirit, literally thrust by the Spirit in the wilderness, led about by the Holy Spirit in the wilderness, Judean wilderness, and came out full of the Holy Spirit. And there he's tempted by Satan for 40 days. So you all know those stories, right? But then he comes back where his cousin John is, and John said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now this is all in John chapter 1. And if I had time, I'll walk right through that passage with you. I'm just giving it to you. I don't have time to look at each text. In John chapter 1, and, and uh, look, the Lamb of God, two of John's disciples. We assume it's John, and we know it's Andrew. Start following this guy. Look, the Lamb of God. And, they start, and I don't know how this happened. I really don't, but here's my hunch. These young guys, John being 16, 17, 18 years old, they began, let's go follow him. And they're following him. And Jesus turns around and he and he says, what's his words? What do you want? Isn't that just like Jesus? What do you want? What are you looking for in life? What are you searching for? What's your heart longing for? What do you want? And, and he goes, oh, uh, well, um, um, I can see him stuttering and stuttering. Uh, 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 where are you staying? And Jesus mutters the first challenge. What's the first challenge? Come and see. Come and see. Come and see. And I love it. Again, I, I, I'd be careful here. So I love to unpack the text. It says they went and spent that day with him. And then John gives us the details about the fourth hour or the tenth hour of the afternoon day, which is about four o'clock in the Jewish calendar. Now, when does the next day start? Almost always it starts at sunset. Sometimes it starts the next morning, depending upon which model you're using. But we know at a minimum Jesus spent two hours with these guys. He said, come and see, and spent two hours relationally. They went to where he's staying. And I could just see Jesus in his relational, life-on-life way. He's going to launch this movement. He's been filled by the Spirit. He's listening to the Spirit. I believe for 40 days he prayed, Father, who do you want me to start with? 
like any of us who want to start a disciple-making movement, we better spend time talking to the Father. If Jesus spent 40 days fasting and praying at the beginning, should we do much less? But then the Lord brought him to him. And so I could see Jesus sitting there and say, Hey, guys, um, what do you guys know about the Messiah? Because everybody's been talking about it. Oh, oh, I know, I know, I know. Uh, uh, Micah 5, 2, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Out of Bethlehem, I'll call my son. Jesus says, yeah, that's good. That's a great verse. Let's look. They look at that. They talk about it. And Jesus says, oh, by the way, guys, do you know I was born in Bethlehem? No, you are so lucky. You got born when the Messiah is going to be born. How? I thought you were up at Bethlehem. I don't know. Remember when Caesar had this thing? We had to go to Bethlehem and there wasn't room. So it was in and in and, and all that goes on. Okay. What else do you guys know about you? Oh, 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 my rabbi. Um. Rabbi doesn't know how this works, but we were talking about the rabbi says we know um, uh, Hosea 11 one says he's going to come out of Egypt, but we don't know how you can be born in Bethlehem and yet come out of Egypt. Jesus, being the great teacher, says, well, what do you guys think the answer to that one is? I could hear him discussing it for a little while. And Jesus says, well, let, let me tell you my story. After I was born in Bethlehem, remember when Herod was killing all those babies, King Herod? An angel appeared to my dad and said, get out of town. And we fled. Now, we had resources to flee because the wise men had come and given us some money. But that's another story. I'll go to that one later. And we fled. And we went down to Egypt for a few years until Herod died. angel appeared to my dad and said, go back. We want to come back to Bethlehem. But the angel appeared to my dad again and said, no. You know, the Herod there now, Herod Archelaus. No, not Archelaus. Herod what? Archelaus. Yeah, it was worse than his father, so he said, go to this other place to live. So in one sense, I was born in Bethlehem, yet out of Egypt. Whoa, that's really good, Jesus. That sounds like that works. I'm going to tell my rabbi that's how it could work. Yeah, Jesus said how it works. What else do you know? And I could go on to this. I could go to Isaiah 11.1. Because I could hear him by this time say, wait, wait a minute, Jesus, you're not saying you're the Messiah. You're out of Nazareth. Nothing good can come out of Nazareth. Isaiah 11.1, 1, oh, Jesus says, oh, really? Nazareth, the root word is Netsorian. Netsor from an olive tree. When you cut off an olive tree or shoot springs up in the middle, he's from shoot town. Nothing good can come out of shoot town. And that really is the olive tree. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm from shoot town. I am that shoot that's going to come from shoot town. I'm a Netsorian. Now, something like that happened because when those guys got done meeting for two hours with Jesus, what did he do? He just opened the Scriptures, pointed them to what the Scripture said, told his story in the middle of that. And Andrew burst out of that meeting and said, Oh, guys, I'm not sure, but we might have found the Messiah. Is that what Andrew said? No, he ran to God's brother and said, We have found the Messiah. So what did Jesus do? Come and see, open the scriptures, reveal to him who the Messiah was, showed how Jesus, he fulfilled it, and then pointed him. And our job is to point people to the cross. And between this gap, I need to put the cross right here. Our goal is to get them to the place where they repent and believe. But now that's just the beginning of the journey, isn't it? Really, the journey began back here. I'm going to suggest to you all four chairs are disciple-making. I don't like the term discipleship. And I, I break rank for some of my friends here. I don't like the term discipleship. At Southeast, we tried to abandon the term. 
We keep telling everybody, don't use it. Because discipleship in 90% of people's minds means chair two, chair three stuff. What you do with new believers or growing believers. The biblical challenge is not to do discipleship. The biblical challenge is to make disciples, do disciple making. It's going to be the whole process. That's why what they said in the forum was so right. It begins when you say hello or come and see. But then Jesus goes into it and the next challenge he gives, it's a challenge is to follow me. Philip, and then he goes to Nathaniel and you see with the Samaritan woman, he says, come. Follow me. Follow me. And so this term, it's going to be used over and over again. It's even used at the end of John, where at the end of it is follow me. Now, this is a different word, a different challenge. For chair one people, he says, come and see, just show up. Chair two is a Greek word, akalathelo, and literally means to walk in my steps, to follow behind, to learn of me. It's a term disciplers would often use when they want to call somebody to be their disciple. It's a, it's a challenging term. Follow me. Walk in my steps. Learn from me. And so Jesus gave that challenge. And I believe this fits for people who've just crossed the line and put their faith in Christ. Now they need someone to walk along in relationship with them. And then it ultimately gets to the third challenge. And this is chair three. Now, what most people don't understand about Jesus is this third challenge in Jesus' life and ministry did not come until 18 months into his ministry. And this was a game changer when I began to understand this. He says, follow me what? What does that mean? Yeah, follow me. I'm going to teach you to reproduce. Because remember, you haven't made a disciple until they make a disciple. Our end product is reproduction, not just growth. You get that? That's huge. And so he said, follow me. I'm going to teach you to reproduce. That in my mind is huge. This was 18 months into Jesus. It's Mark 1.16 or Matthew 4.19. And, and again, if you don't understand the chronology of Jesus, if you don't understand it's in harmony of the Gospels, you tend to think Mark 1, wow, this is the first week of Jesus' ministry. No, because Mark, the man of action, the immediate guy... Mark totally missed most of... He just skips the first 18 months of Jesus because he wants to get to the end. That's the Gospel of Mark. Okay? And so, but when you see it in the chronology, 18 months into it. And this is not... He doesn't give this to the 12. This is to his five. I call it his starting five. He had said, come and see and follow me. He had They had some practices, but now he's going to play the game. And he picks his starting five. James and John and Simon and Andrew and then later on Matthew. Not the twelve yet. And from this point on in Jesus' life, if you study it, you'll see from this point on, Jesus is going to spend 17 times with the masses, but 46 times with these few guys. Did you hear that? You want to understand the priority of investing in the few in Jesus? That statement alone, 17 times at the masses, but 46 times at the few. Study to see if it's not so. He pours into these relationally. He takes them with them. He's doing that one-on-one. And he's not going to be full of joy until the very end where he sends them out two by two. They come back and they're full of joy. He's full of joy because he taught them to reproduce because that was his laser focus. But it begins here. They're not there yet. They're just 18 months into it. They're 
They're, here they're a baby Christian, but here they're young men. Children, teenagers growing up. Getting ready to reproduce, but haven't reproduced yet. And then later, toward the end of his ministry, the fourth challenge, he says, right as he's walking down from the upper room, I believe, in a vineyard, because he's just talked about in John 15. Those of you, and those of you who know me know it's one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. Because in John 15, because this is the last words of Jesus' disciples before he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane to be crucified. He talks to them one last time. He can't stop teaching. A good teacher loves to teach. He stops in this vineyard and he says, guys, here's what's coming. And he talks about four types of fruit bearing. What are the four types of fruit bearing? How many levels of fruit are there? Four in that chapter. What's the first? No, not, not for, there's one more before that. No fruit. Fruit. More fruit. And much fruit. It sure fits in the four chairs. Jesus knew the four chairs was coming. <laughs> it fits, and he said, by this is my Father glorified. That what? You bear fruit? Or more fruit? John 15, 8. By this is my Father glorified that you what? You get to chair four. And bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. I'd suggest to you on authority of God's word that God's agenda for every one of us in this room, if we'll be obedient, it get every one of us. It doesn't matter how smart you are or dumb you are. It doesn't matter how talented you are or untalented. And believe me, I'm a pig farmer from South Dakota. You don't know me. I don't have talent. For the first two years I led a youth ministry, I was too nervous to stand in front of people and talk. God loves to take unlearned and ignorant things and produce much fruit through them. Matter of fact, some of you who are real gifted in this room will have a harder time than those of us who are not because you don't have to trust God as much. But He wants to get us to the much fruit. And when we get to the much fruit, this chair four, now He really gets glorified because everybody looks and says, wow, do you see all the fruit this guy's producing? He's kind of unlearned and ignorant. How does he do that? He must trust God. And God gets all the credit. That's God's agenda to get everyone us to chair four, I believe, to this last challenge. Now, it might take a lifetime to get a lot of us there, but that's his goal to get us there. Some of us are more obedient. He'll get us there quicker. And the fruit, now again, fruit is a biblical thing. I love to just talk about it time-wise. i got to watch it here. You understand, biblically, fruit has three, I could say four, but three meanings. Fruit is about character, fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Fruit is about conduct, acts of service. John, Romans 15, Corinthians 15, acts of service, fruit. But it's also about converts. Character, conduct, and converts. And increasingly, I'm adding the word contributions. <laughs> because I've learned as I disciple people, if they're not givers, they're probably not growing. Because God, I, I, I some of the, my wife knows this, I've become a Dave Ramsey fanatic last year, mainly because of my kids. I want them to learn this. And uh, I'm convinced Dave Ramsey is one of the best disciplers in North America. He's changing life after lives. Why? Because he's just helping to get their finance together with a Christian worldview. Because if people... Why, why do so many people not make disciples? Because they're so busy. Because they're so in debt that they're doing so much. They're working two, three jobs just to get out of debt because nobody discipled them in how to manage finances. And, and um, so I like to add character, conduct, converts and contributions. How do you handle your money? That's a definitely a sign of a discipled, mature person. I didn't mean to step on anybody there. So we got quiet in this room. Did I say something <laughs> bad there? Uh, but, but I've learned one of the things, hiring a number of staff when I led Sun Life, 
uh, I would back away from anybody who had lots of debt because it just meant there's some areas of their life they got to get under control. They're out of control. And um, they haven't been discipled well in those areas. And um, a lot of times we just stepped right in and because there's a free... When you're, when you're a slave to debt, you're a slave, right? It's pretty hard to be free. And it's hard to be obedient all the time if you're slave to debt. And so I'm just increasingly learning the power of, of the fruit that comes helping people in those areas. So fruit has... But God wants to get us to much fruit. Much fruit category. Now... What's the biblical name? The biblical name for this is seeker or lost person. It's a seeker. And like Douglas tell me as he's been teaching this, it's interesting, you can do a lot of things with this chair. You can put this chair. Some seekers, or they're not seekers yet, they're just lost. They're enemies of God. They're hostile to God, hostile to church for whatever reason. They don't want to have a thing to do with any of this church stuff over here. So they're pointed this way and nobody's going to turn them around. But then someone becomes their friend, like Jesus became a friend to sinners, and they begin to move that chair a little bit, and they begin to look out and investigate, maybe not churchianity, but Christianity. They see something's different, and then they begin to become seekers through the Spirit drawing them. Now, by Bible, it says anybody in chair one is dead. And when I, I've been to a few funerals in my day, one recently, and, and I don't, do you expect a dead person to do anything? <laughs> I mean, if they do, something's wrong. He had a survey just came out, I was reading it last night, done by Vineyard, or a Lifeway, and that found that in evangelical churches, 56% of evangelicals feel that they have the ability to choose God in and of themselves. That's not what my Bible says, unless the Spirit draws them. And that's why we've got to work in partnership with the Holy Spirit in this whole journey. Who's the Father drawing? That's what discipling starts, prayer and fasting. Who is the Father drawing? God, you're drawing. The Holy Spirit is working. There are more people seeking God than there are disciples to invest in Him. And, and why waste your time with somebody who's this way? Now, maybe you just need to love on them, but who are the ones he's drawing? Find them. That's why you need the Holy Spirit to do this. So they're seekers. And then you bring them to the foot across, they repent and believe. And then here they're believers. New believers are growing believers. And then you get to this chair. The Bible calls this the what? Worker. The harvest is plentiful, but what? Work, workers are few. Pray then the Lord the harvest raise up workers. And then you have disciple makers. And this is our goal is to produce more and more disciple makers. And now you begin to have a movement. Now, I could layer all kinds of layers on this. What's our, what's our biblical concept? We're to win the lost. We're to pursue them. They're dead. They're not going to pursue us. I, I'm in churches all the time and they're saying, well, there's just people just aren't like they used to. No non-Christians are coming to us. Well, they never did. It's not their job to find us. If I understand Luke 15, right? The lost coin, the lost sheep. I mean, do you, did the lost people find those who are found? No, it's those who are found go out and find those who are lost. And we're to passionately, persistently pursue that which is lost. So that's our, that big disciple making begins here. We bring, we win the lost, then we grow, build the believer, and then we equip, train the worker. And if you try to work with chair three people, the way you work with chair two, you're going to retard them. I mean, how many of you have kids? If you work with teenagers, the way you work with babies, you're going to retard your teenagers. 
If you, when you're a kid as a child, you have rules and regulations and boundaries. You teach them basic stuff to walk, talk, feed themselves, clean, right? That's basic. But if when they get to be a teenager, you keep the same rules, the same regulations, the same boundaries, you can't go anywhere without mommy being right there. You're going to, you know, you'll make them angry at you. You'll retard. So when you, people begin to get to this teenager level, we have to, we have to equip them to go out and make mistakes and then come back and learn some more. It's a, we're equipping. The Greek word equip is a Greek word kataritso. If you haven't studied it, you ought to study it. It means basically two things. It means to repair and prepare. Ephesians 4, 12 says the role of pastors is equip the saints for the work of ministry. And it means to repair and prepare. And in the American culture, I'm finding a whole lot more repair needs to happen before we can get to the prepare. If you, when Jesus went to him and said, follow me, I'll make our fishers men, the text says they were katoritzwing their nets. And what that means, a fisherman at the end of the day would look, pull up the nets, put it in the sunlight, make sure everything. If there was a hole, they would repair it and then fold it so it would be prepared for fishing tomorrow. Now, you would never prepare something for fishing if you haven't repaired it first. I work in my neighborhood where I'm living out the values. I've got five small groups going. God's been doing amazing things in my neighborhood. I was just on the phone all the way here with a guy that I'm going to go home and beat his head in because he's divorcing his wife. He doesn't know that yet. But in love, I'm going to beat his head in. Uh, I'm so mad at this guy. And he's been hiding something from me. And I'm not mad at what he's doing because he's become an alcoholic. I'm mad at that he hit it. And he faked it. Because I know this guy's hurting inside. He's been wounded by some things. And as a result, his wife has found out and she says, I'm leaving. And now he said, I'm going to follow the... No, that's a wrong response. You repent. Anyway, I'm getting off on a side tent. But I have to do a lot of repairing of people in my neighborhood, even though I'm in a nice neighborhood, a golf community, with people that look successful on the outside, but inside they're messed up because they're out of dysfunctional homes. Do any of you have people like that? And, and part of equipping is to... Re- yeah, is to re- I don't have any. No, you're the biggest problem right there. Okay. <laughs> You gotta, and, and that's part, you cannot do this from a lecture mode like I'm doing now. You cannot, this, if you, that's why Jesus only started with five. They were a full-time job. You can't do this with crowds. Now you can do this with more crowds and this with more crowds, but, but when you start getting to this level, it takes that life on life. And, and I don't know if we we'll ever get over this in America, but for, even though I teach this, there are a couple of times in the history of our movement we got sucked into the fact that, oh, we have 60,000 people going through our training this year. <laughs> and I look back, the history of our movement, that was probably the most ineffective years. Because earlier on, we had more life on life. Coaching, the heart stuff, the heavy lifting of getting into people's lives, finding out where they're strong, weak, investing in them, they helping us, that community that was talked about. But but we got to do this, folks. And then ultimately, disciple makers. This is what, let me give you another layer here. The Bible calls this 1 John 2. They're dead spiritually. They're lost. This is a child, 1 John 2, children, young men, fathers. You move to chair four when your disciple 
makes a disciple. When they lead someone to faith, you equip them to do that. And they lead someone to faith or play the key role in someone to come to faith. And now they come running to you and say, I got a baby. What do I do with it? <laughs> what I did with you. Okay? And now they have become a parent. And then if they have another child and another child, there'll come a day when they become a what? Grandparent. And a what? Great-grandparent. And great-grandparent. And next thing you know, you stay at this for 46 years, you got disciples all over the world. And, and I'm in a more high-profile position so I can spot my disciples all over the globe. But some of you have done this because you've been faithful and you don't even know you've done it. But when you get to heaven, you'll see how God used you. Because Jesus says, if any of you do what I've done, you can do what I've done. No, you can even do what? Greater things. And that's what he's talking about. He wasn't talking about power, signs, and wonders. He downplayed that stuff. He was talking about making disciples make disciples. What are the basic needs? And again, all this is written out of the book. Basic needs of chair one is a friend. Someone to love on them. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Remember that in, in, in uh, um, Luke uh, um, 15, I think. Um, I'm drawing a blank on it right now. Maybe it's Luke 11. Luke 15, uh, all these lost people are sitting around Jesus. And righteous, religious leaders couldn't get close to him. And they ticked them off. And he said, look at him. He's a friend of sinners. Jesus wore that as a badge of honors. How many non-Christians call you their best friend? That's what we should be. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Well, they need a friend. Someone to be honest with them. They need to hear the gospel. We can make a whole bunch of lists of what they, a lost person needs. They need whatever it takes to get them to the foot of the cross. They need to understand the gospel and they need the Spirit of God to lead them to repentance, which all of us did in this room at some point, at some time, because God's Spirit brought us to that point. That's what they desperately need. And they need people who will befriend them, who will pray for them, like my neighbor Bud. Doesn't know the Lord yet. My number one request before I leave that community is Bud would come to Jesus. Bud's my neighbor, lived in Chicago for 23 years. In Chicago, if you have guns, you're evil. It's just a culture. I kind of believed that for a long time, so I never had a gun. I grew up in a farm with guns. I go down to Kentucky, everybody's got guns. I mean, I remember the elders talking about, we're packing. And I thought, where are you moving? (laughs) The women in our neighborhood are packing. Bud has 53 guns, so now I own three guns. Because I go shooting with Bud, because he loved to hunt. So I'm I'm praying for Bud. Bud's Bud's my friend. That doesn't know Jesus yet. And then what a new what a chair two people a new baby. What does a baby need? I'm going to suggest you five things. I don't have time to go into this. I love. I want to I want to be done about three thirty. So I can take ten fifteen minutes of questions. If you have any, if not, we'll get you out of here. But we'll see what I can do here. There are five things. And again, I hate just teaching this. I like to ask you and let you think it through. But just for time's sake. First and foremost, what they need to know is their identity in Christ. We have a little booklet that uh, I could tell you a whole story of how this came about, but we've sold tens of thousands of copies. Uh, came out of Lewis Berry Schaefer's Systematic Theology. I was studying through, a lot, you know, through a ten-volume Systematic Theology. I'm weird. I like that stuff. And I was reading this. He talked about 33 things that happen to you the moment you get saved. I'd been studying those 33 things. It was a game changer for me. It's my identity in Christ. Put this together in a little booklet. 
Schaefer has a volume this thick. Here's my booklet. Okay, this shows you my intelligence, ladies. But but God's used it. It's just their identity. Who are they in Christ? Because until a new baby understands whose they are, they won't know who they are. And unless they know their identity, and I could take you to every one of the epistles and show you this from Paul. Colossians 1 to 3, 28 of those 33 things are listed. Uh, uh, Ephesians 1 to 4, 30 of those things are listed. Because he says, here's who you are. Then he shifts the Greek tense from indicative to imperative and said, now here's what you do based upon who you are. And don't start trying to do without understanding who you are. What do babies need? They need to know their identity in Christ. And that's a lifelong learning curve. But if they don't know that they're transformed, they're a child of God, they're a new creation, the Spirit's within them, they're sealed, they're given meaning, they have eternal life, all that lives. Once they get that, they say, wow, it's pretty cool cool to be a Christian. They need to know their identity. Secondly, they need to know how to walk. Don't babies have to learn how to walk? I remember having all our grandkids at our home and their first steps. Maybe we're weird, but do any of you celebrate first steps? You should have heard us. My first grandchild. Woo! Look at that kid! Move over, Olympians. This kid's moving. First, I was so pumped. And they fell down. But, you know, it's cool. First steps, we need to teach them to walk. And we could talk about how do you walk as Jesus walked. We need to teach, they need to talk, how to tell their story. What's their story? You need to help them write down their story. What was your life before you came to Christ? How you came to Christ? Your life since you came to Christ? What's a three-minute version of that? What's a 30-second elevator version of that? Unless you can tell your story, you probably won't understand your transformation. They need to tell their story and then they need to get to a place where they tell what story? God's story. The story of redemption. Creation, fall, redemption, you know, creation, fall, what's the third? Creation, fall, redemption, and what's the fourth one? Recreation. But the, the, the story of the scriptures story there, how to walk, to talk, how to feed themselves. I mean, I remember when Kellen, my second grandchild, was at her house. He was about one years old and he was just learning. He's a little boy. I don't know what boys are like. And this is my first little boy. I mean, it's funny. I was one, but I didn't know how to treat this boy. And because uh, I always had girls, you know, and uh, two of those grandchildren, girls. Now I had a boy and he's at her house and no grandpa, me. No, Grandpa, me. He wanted to feed himself. But, but, Callan, you're getting it all over your hair. Me, Grandpa, me. So he'd take a spoon. I'd give him a spoon. He didn't hold it right. He'd see the peas on his plate. And he'd pick up a pea, put it in a spoon, move it here, take it out, and put it in his mouth. <laughs> okay, you're learning to feed yourself. Long time, all over the hair, all over the floor. You know, a little bit of a mess, but he's feeding himself. Now he feeds himself very well. And he's teaching his younger kids. Brothers and sisters feed themselves. They need to learn how to feed themselves. The, the, the metaphor is clear there, isn't it? How do you read a chapter? What does it say? What does it mean? How do I apply it to my life? This is not rocket science. You don't have to go to Bible school to understand. Read a chapter. What does it say? What does it mean? How do I apply it to my life? Read another chapter. What does it say? What does it mean? How do I apply this to my life? Very sim- simple inductive Bible study. Matter of fact, the best Bible study tools are not the ones I've written. The best Bible study tools is that. Take a chapter, read it several times. What does it say? What does it mean? How do I apply it to a life? 
That's the best curriculum out there. It's called the Bible. How to feed themselves. And then how to clean themselves. How to live a cleansed life. And I could spend a lot of time on this one. But maybe our family's weird. But I can tell you the day we all came around Kellen because he went to the potty all by himself. First time. Woo! We partied! Anybody else like that or are we weird? No, we celebrated that because he's living a cleansed life. And then he takes, you know, wash his hands and then take a shower. And, and, and he's learning to grow up. That's what you teach children. That's the same thing. It's very simple. How do you, what do you do with new, new, new babies in Christ? Those five things you've got pretty much covered. And then they begin to grow up. And then they begin, there comes a point when you can see it, junior high, high school, they move from this me, 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 which is normal and normal and, and in good sense of the word. It's not wrong. Me, 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 my, my, my. Then they begin to say, but we, we, we. Or what about my friend? Or what about this friend? Or how can I help? And they begin to become other oriented as they're healthy internally, right? And that's a normal development process. Now, if we treat them like babies, we're going to retard them, force them backwards. When we begin to sense that other orientation, this is where Jesus says, follow me, I'm going to teach you guys how to reproduce. They were getting to the place where they were becoming teenagers in their faith, young men. And we could talk about that. I think two, they need to learn how to reproduce. And then you get here. It's another whole lesson because you have your first baby. What do I do with it? Babies don't come with instructions. Do you remember when you had your first child? We were on the phone all the time to Shar's parents. What do you do? They're crying. What do you do? In, you know, there, you know, any problem we had called our parents. We needed some parenting because they didn't come with instruction. Did your kids come with instruction? So you ask questions you never asked before. And, and that's when people get to this chair. Now they've got children. We need to help them grow their children and teach their children to reproduce. And we're just moving to grandparent. And my wife and I are going to a four-day grandparenting conference because we want to become really good grandparents. And that's something I've never been before. So we're going to this four-day grandparenting conference in Texas because I am like a sponge reading everything I can because I want to be... A, a grandparent that's my grandchildren will say grandpa made a difference in my world. They're, they're the most important thing in my life right now. Now, let me do this in closing and I'm going to end up with this. There's more we could do. Um, I, I did a training tour with probably three, 400 pastors on this and almost every one of them tell me, says, you know, we just don't have enough workers. We just don't have enough workers. And um, and so I began to really analyze that. At Southeast, where I'm doing consulting, um, they would say again and again, our problem is a leadership problem. We don't have enough workers. We don't have enough workers. We don't have enough chair three people. We don't have enough people that have been discipled to make disciples. So how do you do this if you don't have enough chair three people? All our chair three busy people busy. And um, so I've spent probably the last three, four years saying, how do you get more chair three people? Now, I could go to John 15, and John 15 gives us some answers. I could go to Mark 4. Mark 4 gives us some answers. But I'm going to just give you a real quick, short, this is extra for what it's worth. Uh, three conclusions I've come to. I'll give it to you in a negative. I could give you in a positive. But here's three barriers that keep people from moving to chair three and being healthy in chair three. The first battle that chair two to chair three people, and some of you may be working with these kinds of people. They're young men. They're, beginning, they're, they're growing in their faith or young women. 
and they're getting to a place where they want to invest in others. I'm convinced that if you don't deal with busyness in their life, that's what you have to do to get more chair three people. A chair two person can grow, 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 me, 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 my, my, and they begin to grow up and they begin to mature and then they want to begin to be other oriented and so they begin to get involved in lots of stuff. But then they get so busy, they don't have time to disciple. Really good stuff. They're busy. They're busy. And busyness is not always bad. There are a lot of people, you want to find a leader, just find someone who gets it done. They're people of action. But having said that, our churches have often made people so busy, busy at the wrong things rather than the right things. And so one of the first things I find when someone's growing their faith and wants more and really wants to become a chair three reproducing disciple, one of the first things I have to do is sit down with them and say, okay, tell me what are the ten major things you're doing in your life? Boy, that's really good. That's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. Now, how are you going to get rid of eight of them? (laughs) Now, we're going to disciple some of that out to others. We're going to prune some of that out because how do you move from, no, from fruit to more fruit? The Bible says pruning. So this is what we're doing. We're, we're dealing with pruning here. How do we uh, or we're going to educate it out. We're going to get somebody else. But but I ha- if you really want to reproduce, if you really want to become serious about being a fisher of men, you've got to clean the slate. You've got to get rid of some good things so you can do the right things. The best Ephesians talks about. And, a, and this is where a discipler, if you don't understand this, and they add more to their life because they've got good hearts. They're walking Jesus' walk. They're growing Him. And if they add more to their life, you're going to busy, they're going to get busier, too busy, and they're going to burn out ultimately. And that leads to the second thing. So if you don't deal with busyness, then you'll, they will ultimately burn out. They will burn out. And I put John 15 here because how do you deal with busyness? John 15 said, how do you move from fruit to more fruit? Prune. You just got to. And, and you know what? Oh, I love to talk a long time. I, I write a chapter on this in a book, but I could say so much more. Do you know the difference between chastening and pruning biblically? They both feel the same. They're painful. What good father does not chasten or discipline his children? But what good discipler does not prune? They both feel the same. They're painful. But one, pruning is when you take away good things. Discipline is when God takes away bad things. Now, they both feel like, they both look alike sometimes, but the hard thing about pruning and busyness is because people are, but that's so good what I'm doing. And I agree, that's good, but it's not the best. Because I want to get you to become a disciple maker and to birth a movement of disciples. And so you're going to have to give up some good things to get to the great things. Make sense? But if they stand up, they'll ultimately burn out. Now, why is burnout a problem in chair three? Because here's what happened. People move to chair three, and out of a good heart, they begin to get involved. Even if they've done some pruning, they get very involved. They're working hard. They're working hard. They're busy, busy, busy. And they're doing good things. They're doing works of ministry. But they're doing it in the flesh. Are you familiar with Romans 6, 7, and 8? I just taught this in my neighborhood. This is, oh man, you get me going on this. But Romans chapter 7, there's one word used 29 times. Do you know what the one word is? 
What? I, 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 I. Paul's saying, in Romans 6, he's talking about dying with Christ, being united with Him, buried with Him. Romans 7, he says, and then he says, he talks about there's a, a new life you've been given because you're in Christ. And he's going to, 170 times, Paul's going to mention in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. But then he says, but let me tell you. And then he says, I, but how do you live under the law? I tried this. I tried this. And he said, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I don't do. Oh, wretched man, who's going to set me free? It's I, 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 I. Paul's basically saying in Romans 7, and he says in Romans 7, 6, you've got to learn a new way. Look it up. Just study that. A new way of the Spirit. Because what's the key lesson here? And boy, I've learned this hard way. When people move to chair three and start engaging in the work of ministry, but if they don't learn the new way of doing it in the Spirit, they will burn out. Because you can't do the work of God in the flesh. And Paul ended up saying, oh, wretched man that I am. Who's going to set me free for this? But then he go to Romans 8. And, and 19 times in Romans 8, one word is used. What's the word 19 times in Romans 8? The Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit. It's the Spirit. So Paul is saying for disciples, guys, listen to this, gals. When people get to chair three and they begin engaging the work of ministry, one of the first things we've got to teach them is how to do a new way. To do ministry in and through the Spirit. Some of you learn this by default. You tried to do ministry in the flesh. And some of you are really good at it. You're talented, so you can fake it. You've got fake fruit all the place. It's plastic, but it looks real from a distance. But you know it's not real. But when you start doing it in the Spirit, the new way of the Spirit, and that's the whole theme of, to me, Romans 6, 7, 8. And that's, so we've got to help them the new way of the Spirit. That's what, that's why they need disciples. They need coaches here. Because trust me, if you're in it, it took me years to figure out how to do ministry in the power of the Spirit, not in the power of Dan Spader. The flesh. Once I got it, it was a game changer. Set me free. You came down to my office, you'd see a big sign, custom made, not by might, nor by power, but by, by my spirit, says the Lord. And it's so stinking fun to lead a movement by the Spirit. Because I'm just spending time with God, finding out what God wants to do, and I just try to do what He wants to do, and it just shows up. And the last thing is bitterness. And I could spend a lot of time here, but I'm going to stop. Bitterness, let me just say this. Bitterness is what happens when you're in chair three, you start doing the work of ministry. You know, you're going to get beat up. Do you understand that? Because they're in the battle. Some of you know this. You're in the battle. And you're fighting the battle. And you're going to get wounded from places you did not expect. It may be a criticism from the pastor. It may be a criticism from a staff member. It may be a criticism from someone in your church. It may be a criticism from another Christian, somebody you respect it, and, and you're going to get wounded, and that wound is going to grow and grow and grow and fast. And, and, and I, if I had time, I'd hate, take it to Hebrews 8, 9, 10, which Paul's talking all about this. He says, see to it, you do not come short of the grace of God. And what? Get bitter. If you read any veterans on disciple making, they will tell you the number one. I got three books that say a whole chapter in this. The number one thing that knocks true disciple makers out of disciple making is bitterness. Why? Because you're in the battle. You're in the battle big time and now you're a threat to Satan. 
when you're here, you're not a threat, but now you're, so he's gonna throw, he's gonna fire darts at you, and you're going to get wounded in the battle. And if you don't know, if you come short of the grace of God at any point, which I've done several times in my life, a root of bitterness is going to become spring up. And if you let that thing spring up and don't get rid of that and deal with it, go back to the point of bitterness, and by God's grace, say, where did I miss your grace? And find out that point because if you are walking with and in bitterness, and I teach this regularly at church, and I, and I do this with staff at Southeast, and I'd be amazed how many staff are just flowing with tears because they're trying to do ministry with bitterness because they've been wounded big time. And they're trying to push through it. You can't push through it. you got to go back to that point and get God's grace that you missed and let that flood that. And then you're set free to go into Baller's period. Because bitterness knocks people out of chair three. Because the only way you can get to chair four where you become a friend of God is going through chair three. And I wish I had more time to talk about chair four. I'm going to stop there. Let me just... Um... Oh, by the way, this was something. A church in Texas sent me the four saddles. <laughs> He preached the four saddles. Uh, metaphor me, it's four chairs. But um, again, there's some resources. Um, we can talk about those. Questions, comments. Um, it's been warm in here. I've been going a lot. But or what? what's in your head? What are you thinking? Um, talk back to me. Yeah, troublemaker section back there. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I've got a clarifying question on the, the five needs. So you talked about identity, walk, talk, feed, and clean. Could you kind of talk more about the walk as it refers to feet? Okay. Um, the walk, a, uh, an expanded version of that is what we've written in Walking as Jesus Walked. It's the Holy Spirit Power acronym. How do you walk as Jesus walked? And so the big question we ask once we dealt with the humanity of Christ, which we're going to talk about in our forum, once you understand the true humanity of Jesus, then the question you asked was, if Jesus was truly human, then how did he do what he did? And then we start studying how he did what he did, and that's the Holy Spirit power. He trusted the Holy Spirit completely, prayerfully guided, obedience learned, word center, exalt the Father in everything, relationships with love. And so for new believers, it's a mini version of that. Starting this next year, we're going to have out my daughter. My daughter, Christy, has written a mini version of this. This is a 10-week study on walking as Jesus walked. She's written a mini version for new believers on Holy Spirit power, for brand new believers, a mini version of that. So that will be available. But good question. Does that answer it? Yeah. Okay. Again, that's our best take on walking as Jesus. You may have a better take, but that's our best take after 35 years. So, yeah. Okay, when you say, just do it, but don't let it bother you, what are you talking about? Confront people? Are you talking confronting? Are you talking discipling? Or, or? Well, but here, here's what I would say. And they set it up in a platform. I really convinced, because of our global work, the number one strategy overseas is what's called person of peace, if you're familiar with that, Luke 10. What they do is the leader, the first thing you do when you're going to plant a church or create any kind of disciple-making movie, you spend a lot of time in fast and prayer. So our guys in India who's planted 18,000 churches in 10 years, Benjamin Francis, the first thing they do, get up at 4 o'clock and pray until 7 before they go plant a church. 
they go into a village. Now, they've been the, they pray, fast and pray. Then they go in and try to find the person of peace. Jesus said, don't, when he sent them out two by two, find the person of peace. If you don't find them, shake the dust off your feet. If you find them, invest in them. Don't move around. So the first thing I think you do in initiating any discipling relationship like Jesus is to fast and pray. God, who do you want me to invest in? I'm convinced that's a big part of what Jesus did for 40 days. Who do you want me to invest in? God's got a lot of people out there. That's what I love about disciple making. It's a very, it's job security is real secure. But, but people say, I don't have anybody to disciple. Well, fast and pray. God will bring them to you. But then, keep your eyes open. And what, for Jesus, what did it mean? He went back where John was, and two guys came from behind him and said, where are you staying? Thanks, Father. These are the first two. You really want me to work with those duds? Okay, I will. But, but So fast and pray and then keep your eyes open. Who's the person of peace? The person of peace and the whole concept, Google person of peace. If you haven't, there's a lot of great articles written on it. It's the number one strategy for church planning overseas or discipling overseas. He mentioned it from the platform. A person of peace is someone of, who has a, has a bend toward connections. They're connected. They may be the person you invest in, but if not, they're the person who connects you to everybody else who wants to be discipled. They're connectors. And in my neighborhood, there were two women that were people of peace. The moment I met these women, I told Char, these are it. And these women, they connect. And to this day, they're leading in a minute, but they're connectors. They connected us to everybody else. They saved us hours of building relationships. So fast and pray, and they keep open to who the Father's bringing into your world. It may be a mailman. It may be a child. It may be somebody who calls you. Fast and pray, and then keep your ears open to who God wants you to pour into. It's Luke 10, around 1 through 10, in the person of peace. Good question. Great question. Uh, two more minutes? Yes. In most cases, yes. In most cases, but not always. But but if if it's a a man with a woman, I'd want the wife there, and I just I still feel uncomfortable with that. So I only invest in men ninety percent. My wife even knows any meetings with women. I'm very uncomfortable one on one because I'm married. I love my wife, and I don't even want to in any way create any kind of thing. And Jean's back here, and she knows me there. She's a great friend, but but. I would struggle even sitting with Jean one-on-one in her cafeteria when, without my wife there. It's just who I am, and I think that's safe. And that's why we need women disciples, because 55% of this planet are women. And we men, we need to empower them, because men empower them, give them platforms. But you turn them loose, they will go way beyond you. And we, uh, that's the, the number one passion in my life is to do that with my daughters and my granddaughters. Okay, we're out of time. Thanks, you've been good if I can serve you. If you take this book, you can go and get a free book at our book shop down there. They just want your name and address or something like that. And, oh, yeah, at the Sunlight Booth. Well, if you want to buy it and pay $16, go to the bookstore. If you want it free, go to the Sunlight Booth. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. This audio was adapted from the original presentation. Not all live interactions are included. Learn how you can grow as a disciple maker by visiting discipleship.org, where you can also register for the next National Disciple Making Forum.